0: Hello and welcome to this episode of our Your in Stigma Let's Talk Mental Health podcast. Here at Your in Stigma, we're all people with our own personal experiences of poor mental health, and mental ill health, and we share in our experiences to help end the stigma, bust some myths and challenge negative stereotypes that can often surround poor mental health. Um, today, this episode is part of a series we've been doing on mental health and employment, so mental health stigma in the workplace. We've covered all sorts of different topics, um, but today we're going to be talking about reasonable adjustments in the workplace. And today I'm joined by three of our volunteer York Indian Stigma champions. So I'm here with Emma. Hi. With Hazel. Hi. And with Lauren. Hello. And my name is also Emma, and I'm the coordinator for York In Stigma. So before we get started on the subject of reasonable adjustments and what they are, how do we get them, do we need them, and all of this kind of demystifying of reasonable adjustments, uh, I think it'd be really helpful for our listeners if we each just give a little summary and background of our experience of living with poor mental health and our employment. Um, So just to start us off, for me... I've had poor mental health since childhood. Um yep, so since primary school age, so for a very long time. Um I've also worked for most of my life really. Um I got a paper round when I was 13. And then I started working in the supermarket when I was 16 and still at school studying and and going to university. Then after that, I had a series of graduate jobs in the engineering sector um, because that's what my degree was in. But since then, I've worked in higher education and in the voluntary sector, which is is what I do now with this job at York and Stigma. And so, yeah, so I've kind of always worked, but always been quite unwell with my mental health. Um, So that's me. Um, Emma, how about you?
1: Yes. Um I've suffered from when I was a child with my mental health, um, went through quite a lot of trauma and um then when an abandonment, um, tried going to uni- uh to college, sorry, when I was sixteen and um ended up leaving because I just couldn't cope with it all that was going on at the time. Um so then I went into work full time and it was in retail. Um, And then I got another retail job, um, but because I suffered from social anxiety, it was quite painful for me because um, I was really shy. Um, My anxiety was sky high, constantly hypervigilant. So being in a massive open shop... Um, where there's people everywhere, being on a till for sort of seven hours of your day, um, constantly serving customer after customer was um, really difficult. Um, yeah, and then from then I left, um, I ended up going off sick and I went to work in admin, I got an apprenticeship, um, which suited me better. Um, but again, because of my mental health, um, I struggled, I'd go so long, and then i'd I'd end up making mistakes because of my vigilance and my anxiety um and then my boss would get annoyed at me because of my mistakes um yeah, and then I'd end up going off sick again um and then I was finally diagnosed with e u p d um two years ago and complex p t s d um, and I've been unemployed for three years now, and I've just been offered um, a job role. So yeah,
0: that's me. Thank you, Emma. Hazel, how about you?
2: Um, I've had a quite a long and varied sort of experience as well. So I think I first started getting ill in my teen years. I'm not entirely sure when it's a bit hazy. Um, I got first got, got what you call properly ill when I was about 19 and I was at university. I was studying neuroscience at the time, and I had planned to go on to do graduate medicine afterwards and become a doctor. I somehow managed to finish the degree. I did not manage to do graduate medicine, because I got properly, properly ill. Um, <laughs> uh, I went into teaching after a little bit after that, and then when that also fell apart, in part because I needed DBS checks, um, I went into joinery. And I've now not worked since the end of 2019, because essentially I got very ill in 2020. And I'm now at the point where I'm starting to look for work, but it's all a little bit I'm having to be very careful and having to work out very much what I need and what I don't need and how to not become ill
0: again. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Hazel. Lauren, how about you?
3: Um, I've had some sort of mental health issues since I was about seven, like social anxiety, which went well, I went undiagnosed until I was about twenty-three, twenty-four. Um, now I've got um generalised anxiety disorder and complex PTSD and various other things. Um, I've had loads of casual temporary jobs. Um got a degree in science and a masters in science as well. So I've worked most of my career in scientific and clinical trial sector. Um, I fell out of love with that a couple of years ago. Um because I had a really some really bad experiences. Um so at the moment I'm working in um like in working for a charity which is I've had a really good experience in.
0: Thank you, Lauren. I'm glad to hear that you are having a good experience with your current employer. That's good. Um, So, I suppose for this episode and this topic, so reasonable adjustments, I think what could be really useful is for us just to define what reasonable adjustments is, what it means. Um, So, Had a little look on obviously we want some reputable sources (laughs) rather than just what I think it is. Um so I've had a look on the ACAS website. So according to ACAS, a reasonable adjustment is a change that must be made to remove or reduce a disadvantage related to either an employee's disability when doing their job, or a job applicant's disability when applying for a job. So reasonable adjustments. It's not just you know once we're in the workplace and and working somewhere, it's also through the application stage. So it could be so for example, if somebody needs an interpreter um, during job application stage, or somebody possibly might be dyslexic or might struggle with reading. Sometimes in job applications, people are giving a, a task to complete or some kind of mathematical test or admin test or something like that. You know, A reasonable adjustment might be having a bit more time for that task or having somebody read out the instructions rather than the person having to read them. Obviously, it's all dependent on types of job you know we all need to be capable of doing the job that we're applying for so a reasonable adjustment it's not the same do you know what i'm trying to say it's not, it's not kind of forcing someone into a job that they're just never going to be able to do it, That that's not the case so it's all about disability and disadvantage and putting people on an equal footing is my understanding um, and there's been some nods around the room so that's encouraging <laughs> um but really keen to hear from each of you what your understanding is of reasonable adjustments what you you've experienced I mean for me personally I've always I don't know how I've always somehow managed to perform really well at work so I've never really particularly felt the need to ask for a reasonable adjustment my employers have never felt the need to suggest it um, although I would say with my current employer I've been a lot more honest and open about the severity of my mental ill health and how how bad for want of a word it can get at times, and I've had lots of positive and supportive conversations with my manager, and things have been put in place. Which I guess technically I uh, will probably be enlightened as to whether or not they are reasonable adjustments. But I do find the language, personally, even though I'm someone who lives with long term and you know fairly severe mental ill health, I just find the whole language um, confusing to me. It's not clear. I don't really know whether I'm receiving reasonable adjustments or or not. But I know that, fortunately, some of you in this room as we're recording this podcast know more about this stuff, have applied for reasonable adjustments and have got them. So I think, Lauren, I'm coming to you first because you know about this stuff. Um, So, yeah, I'm going to stop, like, wittering on (laughs) and let you take charge. Apparently I know about this. (laughs) So
3: basically, yeah, um, I have many reasonable adjustments at work. Some of them are like I think what happens with reasonable adjustments is people get scared by the words and I mean I don't when I say people, I don't just mean the in the standard employee, I mean managers and HR sometimes just just go, oh, reasonable adjustments. I have yeah. to I have to like buy things and get pay lots of money. Sometimes it's not massive things. Like probably two there's two reasonable adjustments I have at work and I don't think what one of them, well two the don't think I them either of them have cost anything. One of them is I I have anxiety and I struggle a lot with hypervigilance, Um, a, a lot less now, um, because of complex PTSD and um, I used to get quite jumpy with sudden noises and constantly turning around, getting distracted. Um, so um, my manager actually noticed this before I did, so we, we had lots of discussions about various things I might need. So what we did was. I got my, I got a desk, which, well, I had a riser desk, which is another reasonable adjustment, and we had it face the front of the room. I'm sorry, Lauren, you're going
0: to have to tell me what a riser
3: desk is. <laughs> a riser desk, sorry, sorry. A riser desk, it's fancy. It's, it's not really that fancy. Basically, it has like a little motor on it, um, and you can put it up and down to um, either sit or stand. Oh, okay. Yep. Yep. Well, thank all, you. It's all, yep. also known as um, like a sit-stand desk. Yep. Thank you, Lauren. They're, they can be a little bit expensive. <laughs> Yeah, um, but um, luckily my workplace already had one, so I just kind of borrowed it because no one else was using it. Yeah. Um, so basically, yeah, all all it was was to turn my desk around to face the door, so I wasn't always turning around, and that's made like a huge difference. Then the other one, the other ones that's made a big difference is not having to do phone calls. Um, like a little part of my job would be to make phone calls, um, but because it's So, a such a little part of the job and I can do the rest of like the rest of the work like do workarounds up to it and all of the the people that need to know about that know about it and basically I can do my job well enough without it then I'm allowed to just not do them because it just causes me so much stress and I have to I'm also autistic which is not a mental health condition but it's helpful for this um it caused me so much stress and I have to mask my autism. I have to mask my anxiety and it, it's not worth the stress. Um, I had a long, scary, quite scary conversation about this with my manager and and it was, yeah, we kind of came to the conclusion, it was like, it's not worth it, I can offer a lot more by not being forced to do that. I think the point of a reasonable adjustment is just to make life easier.
0: Yeah, and that's a really important point, Lauren, because it is about as being as well as possible in work and as a consequence, a real positive consequence of that is doing our work as well as possible as well. You know, these aren't, but I, it was interesting you mentioned really near the start and I can imagine, you know, anybody listening, expensive, you know, but then you've said about just changing the orientation of your desk to, to you know, in terms of whether yeah. the, the door is in front of you or behind you has made a massive yeah. difference. I will say at this point, I am also
3: well, invisibly Slash physically disabled. Well, I have, I have chronic illnesses, and fibromyalgia. And that's why I have the riser desk and I have like a, a fancy chair, which was very expensive.
0: And I think again, Lauren, really important point. So reasonable adjustments are for... We can kind of, and particularly here in, in England, kind of separate physical health, mental health, and what do we mean when we're talking about health as a holistic thing? So reasonable adjustments cover physical health and mental health. So that's a really important yeah. point, Lauren. Yeah And I didn't feel... Until
3: sort of like the last
0: couple of years, I didn't realise like how much,
3: this is going to sound really strange, I like kind of felt disabled by my mental health, by, by, by my complex PTSD and anxiety. And it kind of hit me like sort of in the last year. And it was like, oh, OK, and I actually do need help. And it does take a while to come around to the idea.
0: Again, Lauren, really important point there. And I can see some nods around the room That's kind of. You know, again for me it comes back to language so i personally have never t- ticked the box on um you know a job application form do you consider yourself to be disabled for me i'm in my 40s i grew up in the 1980s and you know things were you know in that kind of stigmatizing kind of culture and you know you know that kind of shut up put up man up kind of mentality and for me because i'm and and it's this terrible and i don't have this view anymore but the terrible stigmatizing view that disability equates with wheelchair user. You know, these really, yep. really outdated, stigmatising. So I'd never tick the box. But boy, has my mental health seriously impacted a lot of my life in general, particularly employment, whereas I just don't tick that box. And I think for me, what's been quite fascinating doing, a, this word's going to sound way too is, but a little bit of research, in inverted commas, <laughs> <laughs> for the podcast is actually... There's No, you don't need a formal diagnosis either to get reads. I've always thought, oh my goodness, if I ask for anything, I'm going to have to prove that I'm ill. And oh, and for me, I've I've not had the best of experiences with the NHS. I know some people have great experiences. I, I personally haven't. So the thought of then having to go and get a letter or something from my GP, I'm just like oh, mm. crikey, I'm just not even going there. Whereas actually, it would appear that things have moved on, thankfully, um, and that it is um, easier. Perhaps I don't know. Well. <laughs> oh, well, Lauren. Let's let's go straight back to you, Lauren, and then we will hear from Emma and Hazel. But Lauren, I that was a very um, kind of yeah. Come
3: on. <laughs> I think. I, well, again, this varies in the workplace. I didn't in the pre- two previous workplaces, I didn't get the chance to get any reasonable adjustments. I think some of it is you have trouble with your an agency staff. Oh, yes. It, and that, again, but I think it varies from place to place, which is not great considering it's to do with the Equality Act, which is likely legal.
0: I think, again, Lauren, like these are all excellent points. I think, yeah, the type of work contract you're on. I mean, I can only assume a zero hours contract means you probably don't qualify for anything. But, you know, part time contracts, if you're through a temp agency, if you're on your probation period or not, and the type of work in the industry. Um, I'm sure in an ideal world, everything should be completely equitable and equal. But I can imagine, you know, a family run firm with two members of staff versus your global corporate kind of organisation that's got all the employee wellbeing programmes under the sun. And even then I'm not saying they're perfect and some of us know that they're not perfect <laughs> from our experiences. Um, but yeah, again, Lauren, fantastic points. Um, you know, we are four people talking about this today. With, you know, we've got employment experience in specific sectors, certain organisations and, you know, I can imagine it's, well, never mind imagine, I, it is different people. You know, if your job is, if you do, I don't know, deep sea trawling for fish off the coast of Whitby is a very different job to my job. It's a very different job to somebody working in a bank. It's, yeah, so we are not going to be all things to all people and we don't claim to be, but that is a really, really valid point, Lauren, that of course it is circumstantial and it will vary on your new contract type. Um, Lauren, I know you will have lots more to contribute, <laughs> but I'm really keen that we're here from Emma and Hazel. I don't know if either of you wants to chip in first. Have you ever had reasonable adjustments? Ever asked for them? Didn't think you qualified? Uh, yeah, Anything, really. Um, I don't know. Which one of you wants to come in first? Um, Hazel? I think that
2: what you were describing earlier about the whole physical, of it's basically imposter syndrome, isn't it, really? Yeah, Yeah. And I can fully understand that because... I have, um, along along with my mental illnesses and my autism and my ADHD, because I'm a fun person, um, (laughs) (laughs) I've also got hypermobility, which results in things like um, my shoulder dislocates randomly. Like, putting on a bra can cause my shoulder to dislocate. That's how easily it can dislocate. And I've also got POTS, which results in things like if I stand up too fast or if I lift something heavy. I will go not only dizzy, but sort of lose my vision and sometimes pass out.
0: (laughs) Oh gosh, so is this a blood pressure? I'm a bit ignorant to this. Is this a blood pressure? It's it's
2: very complicated, but it's essentially, yeah, it's due with the way that the autonomic um, nervous system reacts to things and it, it... it presents as a cardiovascular thing, but it's actually a bit more complicated than that. Okay. Thanks, Hazel. Um, <laughs> I won't get into the medical side <laughs> of things. <laughs> I've
0: got to be careful what I ask.
2: <laughs> but, um, so those technically, fully, completely and utterly, definitely do um, could be defined as disabilities. But if I'm perfectly honest, I think my psychosis actually affects my life more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Personally, I definitely 100% see my mental illness as a disability, yeah. but I can fully understand why other people don't.
0: Yeah.
2: Reasonable adjustments-wise, it's a long time since I've requested any for anything mental illness-related. Um, once I entered construction, I pretty much stopped talking about mental illness at all because yeah. no one knew what it was. No one understood it. We just got lots of messages of man up and stuff, essentially, yeah. which, by the way, I don't agree with because it's sexist apart from anything else. Um, <laughs> 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 but... Um, so last time I got reasonable adjust, 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 blah, blah. last time I got reasonable adjustments for my rental illness was probably back when I was still working within teaching. Um, well, actually you know, I wasn't even a teacher at the time, well, I was still a classroom assistant. Once I became a teacher, I got so scared that if they discovered I had psychosis, it would be a safeguarding issue and they'd fire me. Oh, okay. um, long story short, they fired me anyway. But that's
0: <laughs> <laughs> a whole other podcast. That's a whole other <laughs>
2: podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so to be honest, that's probably because I didn't disclose and I got very ill and they didn't know what was going on.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. But... Um, I got things like um, variable hours so obviously I had to be there when the classes were on but they did things like I didn't ever get contracted to work for the first class of the day so I started work essentially at 10 rather than 9 which to a lot of people won't sound like much but when you're on medication that essentially sedates you mornings Uh can be really hard. Um, they also allowed me to have time off for appointments, so a psychiatrist appointments, doctor's appointments, psychologist appointments, therapy appointments, or millions of appointments because a lot of appointments go on when you're mentally ill. Um, <laughs> so I had quite a good experience when I was doing the education sector, in the construction sector, sector not so much. Um, yeah. They didn't even, they weren't even that accommodating for my physical stuff, let alone my mental health. To be honest, but I think that's. Just part of how the construction sector is. I don't want to completely knock the construction sector. There's probably our brilliant employers out there, but
0: I think Hazel just to jump in on that because again, this is a whole different podcast and subject. But there are certain industries to work in that have high rates of things like suicide attempts, deaths by suicide. Construction is one of those industry, industries, and you know my background was in engineering, but I did spend a year on construction sites as part of doing my um, qualifications to become a chartered engineer. And I do think, you know, this this silence and not speaking up and not disclosing. Of course, we need an appropriate reaction and people knowing what to do if we do disclose. But I strongly suspect that the kind of silence around it all is not helping um, with those, you know, statistics. But I think things have, it's been a long time since I worked on a construction site. So I think, and I would hope that today it's slightly better. But statistically, it's not, it wouldn't appear to be a great occupation for your mental health.
2: Yeah, I'm going to do my artistic thing here and tell you the statistics. Go for it. Um, it. (laughs) On average, within the construction industry, on every working day, there were two suicides. Wow. Which is a terrifyingly high number. I think it's one of the top... uh, This sounds really wrong. I was going to say it's one of the top sectors (laughs) for suicide. But that sounds like I'm sort of congratulating it. And I'm not. I'm really not. And I think a big part of it is that the industry does have this mentality still of you get on with your job. We're all menly men here. We no, we don't have feelings. That's a women's thing. And I know that's completely and utterly sexist. I'm not meaning to be. It's just that is how the industry still is, unfortunately. Individual people, not so much. But the industry as a whole, in my experience as a person
0: with boobs, is it's not great. <laughs> yeah. and I, don't, I know we've slightly segued, but I think it is important. And and I think as well, that has, an, certainly for me, has had an impact on when I felt able to speak up and ask for help and support because in a industry or a workplace culture like that you don't feel like you can ask for even if we don't know the terminology and language and we and we never occur to us to use the word reasonable adjustment because interestingly Hazel you mentioning um you've sort of better experience in the education sector of flexible working hours again that for me is something and for me just knowing I can do things or have these things in place for me is massively preventative and it means I don't have to use them. I think employers often think as soon as they, it's like, well, we'll give someone an inch, they'll take a mile. (laughs) It's like for me, um, my employer has said, you know, I often with my poor mental health, I can go for days without sleeping and anybody who's had a bad night's sleep, I'm sure can relate to how terrible and fuzzy headed that makes you feel and you can have headaches and da 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 and all of this and the knock on effect of concentration and your general irritability and mood and all the rest of it so as long as a bit like you Hazel you know if, if, when you were teaching if you had classes to teach you got to be you know you've got to show up and whatever but I've got the option there that actually if I've not got something that's first thing that morning I can come in a bit later half oh, an hour. obviously I've got to communicate and tell my manager and my colleagues what I'm doing But for me, that's hugely, hugely preventative because I, instead of stressing, and I've had previous jobs where they've been really rigid about your start and end time, and I appreciate it's not going to be the same for all industries. If you're working on a, you know, I used to a long time ago work on a checkout in a supermarket. You have to be there at that time. It's different. But in my current um, job, that is so preventive. And I'm guessing flexible working hours probably is a reasonable adjustment and it's classed as that. I can see the knowledgeable Lauren nodding away. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I don't quite see it like that. So it's really... So I think as well, for any employers listening and thinking, oh, I don't know what that is, it's scary, it's going to be costly... Look, as far as I can tell, it doesn't cost my employer anything. <laughs> so I think, yeah, really oh, yeah, fun story about flexible work.
2: hours. <laughs> oh dear. I mean I could join that as well to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I discovered there were rules. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think I think communication's a big part of things. Certainly for me in my current workplace, is letting people know, and you know, we can't have people off the you know, our employers are responsible for us and our welfare. You know, that our, you know, um, policies and procedures, there is HR, and as much as we can kind of like them, not like them or whatever, I have a contract with my employer. You know, I am contractually obliged to do certain stuff in um, exchange for obviously my salary. So I can't go off and do what I want when I want. I can't. That's not the reality of the working life and the system we live in. Um, But I think in terms of the reasonable adjustments, it's having that Flexibility, but Hazel, we segwayed from kind of construction industry and not being great for mental health, and we've we've been around the houses. Well, not around the houses, but we've been around different subjects. But I just want to come back to you before we move on to Emma. Is there anything else you wanted to say in terms of experiences you've had in the past um with getting reasonable adjustments or feeling you could or couldn't ask for them? Obviously, we ended on you saying about. Working in the construction sector, you never disclosed, particularly not psychosis, because you automatically assumed that would be the end of your job. But was there anything else you wanted to, to say at this point?
2: Um, I did have something else, but I've completely forgotten what it was. Um. <laughs> but we will, I'm
0: sure you'll remember. I'll Hazel. remember at some point. We will come back to you. But Emma, any experiences of asking for reasonable adjustments, getting them, or being so terrified to even bring up the subject that you haven't? Mm. What's your experience been?
1: Um, I think. Been I've been too scared like um that imposter syndrome not thinking I'm good enough not thinking well really do you have a mental illness or are you just being difficult sort of thing um yeah not wanting to get seem like I'm wanting preferential treatment just doubting myself a lot because of my low self-esteem and as I say thinking everyone is higher up than me and more adult than me and So I've been too scared to broach the subject. And when I I have asked for reasonable adjustments um, when I um, was working an admin job and it was one thing I struggled with was open plan offices um, because at that time I really struggled with social anxiety. Um, And my team of four of us were smack bang in the middle of the office. Um, It was mainly young females um in the office so it was there was a lot of gossip and I'm I'm not one to try and keep up with people I'll just do my own thing be a lone wolf um but yeah I was so hyper vigilant and anxious and it was making me make mistakes part of my job was picking up the phone and ringing people which I was fine with but when i've got people all around me listening to me um it made me feel even more anxious um so i approached my line manager and explained this and said is there any chance i could sit um somewhere else in the office like um i'm not asking for a throne or something i'm just asking to sit somewhere else so then um They basically said, no, we can't move you. You're on a team. You are where you are. They could have moved me. Half the office was empty, empty desks and empty chairs. Um,
0: So, yeah, they said I had to stay where I was. Um, And I think the word kind of reasonable. You know, that's a bit ambiguous, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, So, again, in the interest of research and inverted commas for this podcast, (laughs) I've been looking, you know, and it's kind of, you know, our employer is required to make an adjustment. If it's going to be so costly that it's going to put our employer out of business, then it's not reasonable. But it is about if it's not going to have a health and safety impact on someone else. And it's things like, you know, if somebody um, finds it difficult to concentrate, noisy open plan office, is having um, noise-cancelling headphones, something mm. like that. You know, low, pretty low cost. But I've heard of other people being refused of that by mm. their employer and like a big employer. Hazel, did you want to add to Oh, that I'm thing? just
2: he- noise-cancelling headphones. I, as a person who's not only got autism and therefore has sensitivity issues but also has psychosis, so I pretty much always have headphones on to help me distract from voices. Yeah. I have been told repeatedly, no, you cannot have noise cancelling headphones. Oh, wow. No, you cannot um, listen to music because you won't be able to hear the fire alarm. Fire and alarms just are pretty t- loud. Exactly. <laughs> also, like, there's a flashing light. How do they think deaf people I was call? just about to say, yeah, and what if you were deaf? Yeah. So, yeah, I just,
0: um, sometimes they come up with the strangest things. No. And I don't understand if it's like nervousness from employees or this kind of. Risk adversity or thinking if they do one little thing. And I think, Emma, lots of things you mentioned I really, really related to. The whole not ill enough thing, I think for me, has partly been I had a lot of self-denial for a long time. So self-stigma, but also societal stigma, where I was not at all prepared to admit how unwell I was. But equally, I've always somehow, I don't know, managed to sort of prioritise work at the detriment of everything else, mainly because I live on my own and I need, to, I need my income, is I look back at my kind of, you know, on paper, and I've experienced, you know, suicide attempt, suicidal thought, self-harm, extremely volatile moods, deep depression, and I'm still looking at oh, I don't deserve a reasonable adjustment. Mm. I'm not ill. And I think it doesn't help me that almost society's benchmark of being well is if you're in full-time employment. And also, unfortunately, in my experience, it's also the NHS's benchmark. So whenever I've tried, the choice almost seems to be, and it's not a choice, you either get signed off sick and you've got no reasonable adjustment or you're in work. So I feel like the fact I can go to work and I work full-time uh, yeah, so I really... That imposter systro- uh, s- syndrome, I'm not really adding anything to the conversation other than to say I really, really agreed with you on that. They're not deserving and and not ill enough. Um, yeah, I just...
1: Yeah. yeah, and then when you do have the courage to speak up and ask and they turn you down, it's even more of a knock and it has the knock-on effect for future jobs. Um, and I've had people, like managers say to me before... You leave your problems at the door, um, yeah. and then you take it as a character defect, like and a failure on your part that you you're not like everyone else who can co- seem to compartmentalize things, and um, yeah, and it's tough. It's really tough.
0: Yeah, and I think as well, it's kind of you know I've been a manager. I've always been mentally unwell. <laughs> you can also be a manager and be unwell. And this is the other. It's always this kind of like this limiting and and, and this fear of like not being promoted and not getting into into certain positions as well. I think there's all sorts of things around that. And for me, that is something as well that's prevented me from asking for support. Is just totally misguided thinking. Oh, that's gonna make me appear weak as this, that, and the other. But actually what I've learned today, you know, in my current job is there's great strength in vulnerability, honesty, openness. And I tell you what, my life is a thousand times better now that I'm open and honest. Um, but one thing I just wanted to come back to you, Lauren, was to talk about, so you know, we often, you know, mental health stigma in the workplace is massive. So as as a project, as your Kenyan Stigma, we often have these conversations and one of our champions who it isn't on the podcast today, something that they bring up um, quite a bit, and um, for them in quite a positive way. But I've had no experience, don't know much about it, so I'm hoping that maybe one of you might have. Is in terms of access to work. <laughs> Brilliant. So, well, okay, I'm, I am detecting. I I am completely coming at this from a. Non-judgmental, I'm very much sensing the cynicism. I haven't got a clue. I've oh never had to. Uh, from what I can tell, it's a government scheme, if scheme's even the right word. But Hazel and Lauren obviously reacted the, the most there. <laughs> Would one of you like to explain? Shall I begin? Oh, you you, yeah, can, you go can go it. first. So what <laughs> is it? And, you know, what does it set out to do? Because I can only assume it's meant to be doing something positive. Obviously, I can gather that you guys have not had a positive experience. Oh, dear. What is it? What, what, yeah, what,
3: yeah, go for it, Lauren. It's supposed to um, basically, it's a bit like reasonable adjustments in the fact that it's supposed to help people stay in work.
0: Um, so you need to be in employment then? To-
3: I'll, I'll be looking, to, I'll be, um, there's a funny terminology around it, but yeah, you can apply for it when you're getting a job. Like, oh, okay. Because basically yep. how it works is um, yep. the first time you apply, your employer will pay for what you need. And then the, um, I think it's DWP, we'll pay it back to your employer. Okay. Um, and how it, how I experienced it, I didn't have a very nice experience. Um, they it they had they had like a massive backlog of waiting on a waiting list. Um this how it works is that you fill out this form of like, what illnesses do you have? What like basically what is wrong with you? And um then it's like, how does this affect you at work? Do you need X, Y, Z? Do you need transport to work? That kind of thing. It just asks you like loads of different things. It's bit, it reminds me of like a PIP form,
0: really. <laughs> okay. Um, so is it quite prescriptive? Because I, I can see it might be useful. You know, if I was an employer and it's the first time one of my employees is coming to me and saying, I'd like some support. They may or may not use the word reasonable adjustment. Does access to work offer some practical, helpful solutions I mean, and suggestions? They can like sort of get the equipment like they can basically
3: it's almost like prescribing the equipment if oh, you like okay. that's how i got my like very expensive chair
0: <laughs> yeah
3: um because they like can then they have like partnership or something with suppliers from what i understand i mean that they, they talk to hr of companies and things and it all gets done through there um so you got the application gets sent off you go on this list and you have a case manager. Um, and then you get to the top of the list and you, an assessor. Um, they used to do it before COVID. Apparently, they used to get the assessor to come out to you. But they did it over, they were over like Teams or Zoom or something. Um, the assessor didn't really, you have to basically have to tell him your life story. Yeah, the assessor was a bit, I didn't, I wasn't getting anything from him. Um, it was kind of like very blasé. And I was I was so anxious to the point I was like almost shaking, bouncing in my chair. Um, fortunately, I had my manager in with me, but it was just like, you know, you can't, I I have to like say it myself, I can't have an advocate. And it was just, it was all oh, So
0: they, I've had that, funny enough, I've had that experience a long time ago, it might be different now, but with the NHS and the GP, and if you can't say the word yourself, it's almost like you're being coerced or whatever worse for me when I'm really, really, really mentally unwell. I can become non-verbal and they won't accept anything written or it might be that I'm capable of telling what I view as a safe person, like being a really close friend. But that close friend back then, it might have changed now, couldn't come with me into the GP surgery and say, Emma's feeling this or, or yeah. that. So it almost sounds like it's a similar... She thing was, to when you say you can't have an yeah, advocate, Gosh. She was sat
3: in the same room Yeah, um, and... What was worse is I put all, like, on the form and on when they communicated with me, I said, you know, please communicate with me via email because at my workplace, there's no phone signal. Yeah. It's absolutely pants. Um, and I was like, can I have some kind of degree of warning when you're going to like book this, this, book this appointment? Because being autistic and having anxiety, I don't cope well with change. I don't
0: cope well with changes to routine. Um, and considering this organization is going to be prescribing in inverted commas, Reasonable adjustment. And you would have thought that you asking yeah. at this stage was and it, and <laughs> go- your preferred communication could
3: be. It, it's a government you'd expect better. Oh god! Um, and they literally, I, and I had I'd spoken to like the case manager in person, and they said, "Oh yeah, they'll be in touch with you in like forty-eight hours." 48 hours came and went. And so I'd, what? I was spamming them with emails.
0: So I'm just thinking, Lauren, in terms of the long and short of it all. Yeah, they
3: just didn't. They didn't did manage Did you it at actually all.
0: get any? Re- it sounds like the process for you. Wasn't it, wasn't it? Wasn't smooth? It was awful. Wasn't friendly or, or whatever. But what was the outcome? Did you actually got, get a reasonable? I adjustment? got stuff because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that might be helpful. And what? And, and particularly considering, obviously, for us, we're most interested in the stuff for your mental health. Yeah. What did you get then? In terms, I of- got
3: well. I got basically my chair and some nice counselling headphones. Yeah.
0: And I got, I mean,
3: I don't know if anybody has, like heard of them. Some something called coping sessions.
0: Okay. No, I've not heard of them. They they're
3: kind of they're kind of aimed at like neurodivergent people, helping them to cope in the workplace. Oh, okay. Um I abandoned them after five sessions because they were actually making me really anxious and oh. probably taking me down a track I didn't want to go down mental health mental health wise kind of squeak. Yeah. do Yeah. It, they, it helped, but I mean, it. Yeah. It didn't. It wasn't. I don't know if if it's worth saying it was was worth the hassle, but I wish it wasn't that dramatic.
0: I think what it makes me think about is we're all individuals and what works for one person might not work for another. And I think with these big sort of government schemes, they're trying to do the one size fits all. But what I think is really positive, Lauren, is obviously you identified, or, or maybe somebody did on your behalf and let you know, but it sounded like you identified that five weeks into those sessions... It wasn't helpful. Um, You've decided to stop. My only kind of response to that, I suppose, would be with employers is this kind of dreaded term of non-compliance. So if you're offered a reasonable adjustment from the DWP and then you turn around and say, um, actually, it's not helpful for me, I do find it's really complex and there can be more stigma. But I think What would probably be helpful is, Hazel, you also seem to react quite strongly (laughs) to the mention of access to work. So, Lauren, it sounds as though you had a bit of a torturous process, but you got stuff which helps, uh, which is great. So, Hazel, what was your experience? Uh, Well, access to
2: work was sold to me as a sort of advocacy, advocacy service who would speak to like HR and stuff on my behalf, and had those hard conversations for me, it ended up I was completely missold. That is Um. not what it is. (laughs) Um, I never actually got all the way through the process with them because it just became too traumatic and I got ill. Um, But anyway, um, so my caseworker fully admitted quite early on that they had never worked with anyone with psychosis before and had Ah. absolutely no idea what to do with me. They offered me quite badly by saying something along the lines of I thought you people didn't work. (gasps) So that oh wasn't my gosh. that wasn't yeah. great. Um, I don't know if they're more set up for, I don't know, more well-known illnesses <laughs> or. Sounds like it. I'm not really sure what their training involves, but basically, they'd never. This particular person never worked with someone with psychosis before, and just didn't know what to do with me. Um, so yeah, I didn't get all the way through, um, I, and I'm reluctant to ever go back to them. What I'm currently using is something called Access to Inclusion, which is a year-long program. And you get a caseworker, a key worker, a caseworker, a key worker, yeah, who basically will help you, will work with you for a year. And to be honest, I'm still not having great success with that either. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm having a lot more success with that than I did with Access to Work. With Access to Work, it was all very formal, it was very corporate speak. If you didn't yeah. know the lingo, it was very hard to get. Whereas with Access to Inclusion, my key worker seems a little bit more willing to take what I say on a board. She still makes her own assumptions quite often wrong. Oh, and sometimes it takes a little bit of needling to get her onto the right track. But she's willing to, willing to listen, which Access to Work just seemingly weren't. So yeah. there were just a lot of assumptions. They didn't know how to work with psychosis. And personally, they didn't get to the end of the process. So I don't know what would have happened.
0: I think, Hazel, you've probably sort of hit the, n- the nail on the head with the assumptions of what mental illness is mm. and isn't, and who can and can't work and who's, who's that with capable. As well. I think it's I think that is the crux of the problem. And funny enough, the person who I've heard from who's quite positive about um access to work, their experiences, from what I can gather with their own um, mental ill health, is the more reactionary stress, there's been an uh, incident, probably the wrong word, but you know, um, what's the word? Well, you know, you can imagine if you've gone through a bereavement or a divorce or whatever, it might negatively impact your mental health, might not necessarily, but they have found that access to work helpful in that situation. So I think possibly, Hazel, I think you might be right with your kind of opinions and experience that, they're just not geared up for psychosis.
2: Although on a positive note, I am very glad that they admitted to me that yes. they'd never worked for anyone with psychosis and they didn't really know what they were doing. If they'd just out ahead and made it sound like they know, I think it may have ended up worse, to yes. be honest. So at least they were honest with me.
0: Yeah, and I think as well, you know, as a society, we didn't, you know... When I was a child, it was all hush hush and nobody wants to be. And well, no, I don't want to be mentally unwell in the first place, but you know, <laughs> even if we are, you know, we don't want to talk about it. And da, da, da. I do think as a society, we're getting a bit better. But I think, you know, statistically, one in four people experience poor mental health at any point in their life. We've still got three quarters of the people who don't. So I think, you know, for us as a project, we're used to talking really openly and particularly with each other about our poor mental health, how it impacts us. But we can't expect all of our colleagues to have an understanding or knowledge or appreciation. So I think there needs to be a two way process. But however, what I have found in the past is that managers and senior leaders are really, really bad at holding their hands up and going, I don't know they tend to see that as their own weakness and Emma I, I can see you nodding along to that and I could see you nodding as well to a lot of what Hazel was saying about suitability of, of access and work to things so I think it's a good point to bring you back in if you've got more that you want to say.
1: Yeah I was I've um, been working with an access to inclusion support worker Um that's because I'm a lone parent but she has been absolutely amazing and they encourage you every single step of the way when you doubt yourself they tell you you're amazing you can do x y and z they bring in confidence courses um and if these things were implemented actually in the workplace because once I start my new job she'll then have to sign me off because she's done Uh, her job yeah um so if they had these things in the workplace that would be amazing um and I mean there probably is in um, some companies, but yeah, for people's well-being, um, people that do struggle with things, then just having that one person, you don't necessarily need all your colleagues to hear you and understand you. But if you've got that one person that you can go to and say, I'm struggling and they'll understand, it would
0: make all the difference, I think. Um, yeah, and It's so positive to hear um, that you've had that positive experience with the inclusion and it's really interesting how it's it's almost in contrast with the access to work <laughs> stuff but really positive to hear and you know we're recording this in 2022 and our podcast episodes you know they go out when they go out and people can listen um, you know for years to come or whatever. so as we record um, there is um, a local organization in York um, St Nick's who do a thriving at work program completely free. I believe you do have to be in employment to access it, but it sounds like a similar-ish thing. You know, Mm. people feel free to, you know, search on the internet, ring them up, whatever. I'm not, you know, an advert for them. I've not used them, but I've heard positive things. um, And it sounds like perhaps if that stops for you, Emma, it could potentially be something. Mm. Um, But just you saying about stopping things, again, um, with my experience in the workplace, I've asked at the time, not knowing it was reasonable adjustments or whatever, asked for support. And then, of course, the support kicks in, doesn't it, and starts to work a bit, and you start feeling a bit better. And then I've actually gone to my manager, oh, I feel all right now. I don't think I need that. And I constantly feel like I'm wasting their time and this, that, and the other. And my manager, I mean, all credit to them, actually went... Do you not think that thing that we're doing might be the thing that's keeping you well? Whereas I love to think it's me. I love to think I've now, <laughs> I've, I've made myself better. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, yes. <laughs> Let's keep doing it. Because I hate the fact that I need support. Like I know that if I didn't have a supportive manager, supportive colleagues, and as a couple of really good supportive friends outside of work, I know I wouldn't be able to cope. I know I wouldn't be able to work full time. And I find that really, really hard to admit. And for me, that is also a big part of the problem with getting any kind of adjustments and support. And, and Emma, I can see you nodding to that as well.
1: Um, when I've been signed off sick from the last job I was in um, for three months and then I was ashamed to go back. But I did and they sort of spoke to me and I said, right, we'll do your phased return to work. But then I'm like, but why do I deserve a phased return? Why do I deserve to work one or two hours a day and gradually build it up when everyone else works full-time and they're perfectly fine? And, um, yeah, accepting that support is tough sometimes because you don't feel like you deserve it. Um, but in actual fact, it allowed me to gradually get back into my job and rather than up and leaving the job because of the embarrassment, um I was able to go back into it and carry on um, and do OK. And they also um, said to me that because it was an open plan office um, and they had booths around, if I needed to take myself off to a booth at any point um, just to get someone quiet, um, then I was able to do that. And that made all the difference just being
0: heard. Yeah. Yeah, and that's just reminded me... Um I would just say at the at the start you know this subject is huge in terms of mental health in the workplace we have got a podcast episode specifically on what keeps us well at work. So we're talking today about reasonable adjustments and and how you can potentially, Lauren, potentially get support (laughs) through access to work and kind of some of the legal requirements and and not. But there's also things that we all do as individuals and things that our colleagues do without any kind of contractual obligation. Um, So we have got a podcast episode about what helps to keep us well at work. So... And this isn't a reasonable adjustment. You know, we're all entitled to a lunch break, but do we all take it? So although that's, you know, not something we're talking about as a reasonable adjustment, there are a whole load of other things that we can all do to help to keep us kind of as mentally well as possible in the workplace. So we have got a separate podcast on that. Um, Hazel, do you want to add something?
2: i just like to point out that I once did have lunch breaks put down as a reasonable adjustment um, oh. because at the time I was in eating disorder recovery and it's really, really important when you're in recovery to have like set eating times oh, okay. so it was put down in my reasonable adjustments that I had to have breaks at x time so yeah. that I could continue with my food and stuff and also I take some of my meds at lunchtime so I don't want to take them like <laughs> yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. yes
0: so I suppose if if what I'm thinking is in terms of it because obviously we are all legally entitled to a lunch break I'm guessing and but correct me if I'm wrong in terms of that you know if if it was your you know a lot of employers have I've worked in places where you've had to take your lunch between one and two or between 12 and two. And, you know, you choose when you have your half an mm. hour or your hour or whatever you're contractually obliged to have or, you know. But I suspect then, Hazel, for you, was that because you needed a different lunch time or? Oh, a, no,
2: it was because um, at the time. Because legally
0: you did have lunch break. Oh, well, <laughs> well, to be fair, I have worked in
2: construction for 10 years and sometimes you don't get it. But anyway, um, legally you meant to. Um, no, it was um, at the time the place I was working essentially because of the nature of the work, because we were working with concrete, you could only you could take your lunch break once you know you finished oh, the, yeah. the job, because you can't leave the concrete like halfway through the job. Yeah, yeah. So it was written into my thing that if it got to the time that I had to have the lunch break, someone else would come and relieve me.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. Um,
2: it was a bit awkward at first because people were like, why are they getting special treatment? Oh, but yeah. eventually that died down and everyone just accepted it. But yeah. yeah, it was written in that I had to have breaks at specific times and I couldn't move it because of whatever job I happened to be doing at that time.
0: Yeah, and I do think what what you said about people eventually accepting stuff. It's really interesting what the culture and I've tried this like with different jobs because again, you know, I've in the past being a workaholic and it's like it is a choice. Workplace culture can be what it is and we feel this immense pressure to go with the crowd. But then I got a, a different job and we there we had an hour lunch break. And I would always go out for like a half an hour walk and then spend the other half an hour having my lunch, whatever. And I used to, at the same time every day, go for that half an hour walk because I always did it from day one. And everybody else just ate their lunch at the desk, whatever, more full of them. And it took a lot of like courage, but because I did it from day one, everybody was so used to it and people wouldn't, if it got to like, you know, 29 minutes past 12 and I was going out half, people wouldn't come up to my desk and suddenly start, people knew that I'd be going out for my lunch break. And, they, and I think there's a lot to be said for culture and attitudes, but also sometimes we've got more choice than we think we have. You know, I've had days where I've not drunk enough water at work or I've not, it's my personal choice. It, it, it's a combination, isn't it, of personal responsibility. But I do think as a collective in the workplace, we can help each other. You know, I've got colleagues that encourage me to take breaks if I haven't, and this, that, and the other. But I think we can all do it. But I think it sounds, Hazel, as though that open culture, and the fact you were almost in a way forced to have that conversation and tell your colleagues. But you said, yeah, they got used to it. I think gradually, as a society, hopefully in our workplaces, we're getting used to people you know, doing what works for them.
2: In, in that particular case, I think I was quite lucky. It was quite a small company, and the vast majority of the employees there were quite young. And I don't want to sound ageist or anything like that, but I find as a rule, if you're working with people in their 20s or 30s, they seem to be a lot more accepting than if you're working with older people because yeah. of the culture. Yes. It's not mm. because of age, it's because of just general culture, essentially, I think. Yeah. Things are
0: changing. Yeah, I think, I think you are right there. You know, I think of, like, my parents' generation, and boy it was you know it was so so different then and of course you know we've got you, people of all work, working ages um so yeah I, I think you're i don't think you are being ha- ageist hazel i think it is almost trying to be diplomatic. it's almost like a it's almost like a fact <laughs> isn't it you know and you know what we're doing today and all the stuff we've suggested oh my goodness in 50 and 100 years time will people look back and be like why did we think noise cancelling headphones were like the solution to, you know, whatever? <laughs> um, it will all move. I think that's another thing, um, I suppose, in terms of kind of messages and things, and I'll, I'll ask each of you, you know, messages for employers and managers and, and people listening. For me, is that constant, or well, not constant, but, you know, regular review. And just because of my mental health, my mental ill health particularly massively varies, um, you know, different days, different months, different years, whatever. It varies. And I've agreed to stuff before and thought that would be brilliant. That'd be really helpful. And then a few months later, I'm like, oh, actually, I know I said yes, but, you know, I either hadn't fully said this or stuff's changed or whatever. So I think it's it's not a box to tick. And we've done that. We've done reasonable adjustment. Oof, done. Because actually our mental health well for me anyway it varies so much mm. um I'm fortunate that I work my workplace every six weeks I have a one to one with my line manager so on a regular basis I got the opportunity to have those conversations but not everywhere is like that um Lauren
3: um I've just thought of another well I don't know if I even know if it's classed for reasonable adjustment but I have the I came up with this idea with my manager because um, because our work has like Sort of flexible policy where some, oh, I don't work in, at home very often because I concentrate a lot better in the office. Um, but my manager's not always in the office. So we're like, how can we, commu- how can you communicate to me? She's like, how can you communicate to me if you're not having a good day or like if you're struggling with anxiety or anything? So I'm thinking, came up with this, this emoji key on Microsoft Teams. So if I was having like a bad anxiety day, I've got like an emoji to match it. And yeah. we both know what it means. So I can just send her it and then she'll know, it, like she'll possibly need to check in anyway in a couple of hours and just check that, you know, things are all right and I haven't um, gone downhill or anything. But
0: Yeah, I think, Lauren, as well, a lot of it comes down to trust and to honesty and I think as well there's a lot of risk adversity and you've just reminded me, so with my line manager, sometimes it's just far quicker and easier to send a text about something than it is. But, you know, there are boundaries and it's a professional working relationship. I am not texting my manager at 3am and I'm not sending (laughs) 20 20 texts in half an hour. You know, we've got to be professional here. And I think sometimes one of the real negative stereotypes about people who are mentally unwell, which obviously includes myself, is that we're going to start behaving in these really unacceptable ways. And for the vast majority of the time, I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, there'll be odd occasions for people out there, but the vast majority of the time, we are incredibly trustworthy, hardworking, conscientious, very aware of what we should and shouldn't be doing you know and but i think there's a lot of risk adversity from hr occupant oh well if we start doing that oh gosh you'll never hear the end from that or da, da, da. or if we start talking <coughs> about mental health particularly mental ill health in the world we're gonna make everybody ill and it's like we're already ill we're just not telling you you know we don't feel psychologically safe enough to tell you and that is a far worse situation than being people being open and honest so i think yeah there's a lot of risk adversity still um including what you said at the start, Lauren, about costs as well. Um, I'm just thinking about the time. And again, like all of these things, there's so much we can talk about <laughs> on these subjects. But if you can each a think um, anything you haven't had a chance to say about reasonable adjustments, any reasonable adjustment you think, oh, we haven't mentioned that, but it could actually be helpful um, for our listeners. Um, or just anything else you want to say. Um, Emma? Yeah, um, I
1: think preventatives like not just putting in employers putting in reasonable adjustments when people ask for them but it's the well-being of their employees being considered before even all of this um because our place of work can cause mental health problems can't it um so yeah just i've worked for small family-run companies that have had no like HR really, no mental health support, and it's all politics and they make all the decisions. And then I've worked for bigger organisations where they go through HR and occupational health and they put things in place. Um, So yeah, making employees feel valued um, rather than just another cog in the wheel that anybody could fill that role makes all the difference to people with mental health problems and that haven't experienced them before, but may
0: potentially, yeah. I think, Emma, that's a really, really important point about the upfront and preventative stuff. Um, so often, I know in my experience, I have literally waited until crisis points and um, for various reasons to say things. Also, I think you've just reminded me of something else, is with my current manager, where I do feel I can be open and honest, Boy, does the conversation go a lot better when I'm well or well enough. My mental health really varies and I can become really quite unwell. Asking me when I'm really unwell, <laughs> or what will help me, I'm not necessarily thinking, well, I'm not thinking as rationally as I would normally. Mm. I can't think properly. I don't I'm in survival mode. I can't really think about it. So, but often when I'm well, I'm at fault for want of a better word, I don't want to think about how unwell I can be. So I'm like, oh no, it doesn't matter. Oh no, I don't want to talk about it. Oh oh, no, whatever. And when I'm well, I want to just crack on with my job. But it's really, really important for me to have those conversations when I am well, because that's when I'm going to be more honest and actually suggest the things that will help me. Mm -hmm. And then we know what to do. For me, sadly, unfortunately, inevitably, <laughs> when we do we hit that dodgy patch. Um, so, yeah, so I can see, Lauren, you want to come in on something and then we'll come to Hazel.
3: Um, I just do remember what I was going to say. Um,
0: yeah, I think it's
3: um, important to remember to treat people as individuals yeah. and not, like, assume just because X person with anxiety, for example, um, has this adjustment in place means I'll people with anxiety will, will need that same adjustment or even if it'll work because
0: not the
3: same adjustment won't work for everybody
0: and I think really importantly with that as well it's not a failure Yep. if an adjustment doesn't work for you for whatever reason and again I think managers managers who want to just fix people yep. it is not a personal failure on either side If a manager suggests something, it doesn't quite work out. We can get into this blame culture, which is really, really unhelpful. It doesn't help anyone. Equally, um, you know, I can – this is a whole other podcast. I cannot do, right? Mindfulness and meditation is just never going to be my thing. But that doesn't mean I'm a failure at Mm -hmm. mental health self-care. It's just not my thing. But equally, stuff that I do won't necessarily work for you, Lauren, or or whatever. Hmm. So I think you're spot on with it. It's been individual – and you know we've got to put our and we're all humans we've all got egos we have you know we can't eradicate that try and put our egos and personal agendas yep. aside and mm-hmm. it's that collective goal we want everybody to be as well as possible we want everybody to be in work as well as possible and that's when we can start to have positive conversations but when it yeah. becomes about Failing and non-compliance, oh, it all goes horribly wrong. But yeah. that's a whole different podcast. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but
0: Hazel, I'll the I think best thing my
3: manager's ever done was just like we've had that open conversation, and she's just like listened to what I have to say before, um, and like and like like heard what I've got to say because listening in here is two different things. Um, and yeah. before she's like tried like acted on it, or and she hasn't tried to f- like fix me because basically. I'm not gonna be magically cured. Yeah. Because
0: that um yeah, I'm on that way. like I haven't found the cure yet. <laughs> and equally, just on the listening and and, and managers, because it can and you weren't doing this this at all, Lauren. But it can be <laughs> easy to like bash managers, blame managers. We're not doing that at all. Equally, I've had to listen. When I'm really unwell, I can struggle to listen, I can struggle to take advice on board, I yeah. see it as a personal attack. And my managers had to, like in a real calm and rational way, saying, I'm not judging you, Emma. I'm not this I'm trying to help you. You need to listen as well, mm. and it is a two-sided yep. thing. I'm guilty of that. As whereas well. it can be very us and them. But what I would say to employers, managers, listening is we need that compassion in two way. When we're unwell, it is an illness for me. You know, with this, and I know you know there's various theories as to whether it's an illness, a social, no- whatever. But all I know is when I'm struggling, let's say with my mental health. I can't help it I'm not thinking the way I normally would I do need some you know it's not an excuse for anything but I do need some kind of compassion and understanding like I'm not doing it on purpose yeah uh, I think
1: yeah and we can work on managing our reactions so we're not just reacting like that and we take time think things through um but yeah it's easier um, said than done. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. Okay,
0: I've been very guilty of the odd little tantrum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, Hazel, because we are, like, yep. we, can, I could, I can talk for England, as we all know. But Hazel, anything you've not had chance to okay, say? So here's the thing with me. All
2: the adjustments in the world when I am ill are not going to help yeah. because I'm essentially not in this reality. Uh. I'll be hearing things that aren't there, I'll be seeing things that aren't there, I'll probably think someone's after me, I'll think there's tracking devices in my body, sometimes I think I've got magical powers. That's, nothing is going to help. Yeah. So for me, it is all about prevention. It is all about minimising the triggers, minimising the stress, because when it comes down to it, my illness is quite often triggered by stress, which really inconvenient. Yeah. <laughs> So for me, when I am ill, ill, I'm not going to be at work. I'm yeah. just not. So, part of what for me would be really helpful is just people understanding of that and not lose my job when I try to come back, which has happened multiple times. And just, I don't always know what I need, and I fully understand the manager probably doesn't also always know what I need. It's quite obvious what you need to do for someone if they've got a broken leg. It's not so obvious yeah. what to do with someone when they're seeing things um, yeah. <laughs> so I totally get that so I think it's an awful lot of it. it's just it is open communication and it's everyone's willingness to under- try to understand the other person's point of view mm. and for me it is completely and utterly just preventative stuff because
0: once I'm ill other than hospital not which is has got to help and Hazel that is such a such an important point and I think as well none of us want to be ill you know regardless of severity i think prevention for all of us is by far the better thing something else that i would say hazel is from what i know you know you've been volunteering with us for for quite a long time i can't remember the exact time now but well over a year a long time you have got so many skills knowledge such a valuable person who would be excellent for an employer and it just is so so Frustrating and in a way upsetting that mental illness and particularly the stigmas around it and the unwillingness for employers to find out more and put in those reasonable adjustments and not all employers but and what you said about statistics something like is it any eight percent of people impaired employment impaired.
2: With, psychosis, with psychosis psychosis well I think my <laughs> final
0: message to employers is missing out you're missing out on dedicated talented really really good quality employees, you know. So I would say be open-minded, have those conversations, engage with us as Your Ken in Stigma. One thing I will say, again, we record these podcasts at different times of the year, so it's not happened yet, but I think by the time people are listening to this, so in November 2022, um, so we're recording this in September, who knows when it will be released, um, we are launching a Your Ken in Stigma employer framework, And as part of that, we have got suggestions from our own experiences as to what is helpful in the workplace, what isn't. We're gonna be having a self-assessment tool. So as an employer, whatever size you are, whether you're two people running your own cafe, whether you're a massive business in York with thousands of employees, we're not giving you a badge or a sticker and we don't want to know your results. We want you to be honest, which is why it's a self-assessment. And we want you to be honest. You don't need to disclose the score or the result or whatever to us. And it's all about reducing mental health stigma in the workplace. We want York and beyond. People can use our tools wherever, but we are York based to be a happy and healthy place for us to work. And we believe here that eradicating mental health stigma will go a long way towards that. Um, so, yeah, as usual, we're well out of time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so unless anybody frantically waves at me with their burning thing they haven't said, um, then I think we will have to call... call <laughs> have to, have to, it, that's how long it's It's catching, been. it's <laughs> catching. To, catching. <laughs> we'll bring this to a close. So I just want to say... Thank you so much to Emma, to Hazel and to Lauren. Um, You've been brilliant as always. Um, Thank you to our listeners um, for listening. We hope that you found this helpful. Um, Thank you.